On today's episode, Anna shares the story of Gilberto Valley, a man with a secret so dark and twisted that he lost everything. Then later, Ashley shares the infamous story of D.B. Cooper, a hijacking that has remained one of the biggest mysteries to date. Welcome to Crime Bar. Okay, hi. Hello. Hi. It's a huge day today, Ashley. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not. Actually. Well, <laughs> uh, it's a huge day because we're. <laughs> it's a huge day because it's Thanksgiving, but not really. It's actually November 7th, and we have a new president. So this is like a little behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we record these way in advance, so yes. <laughs> even though this is our Thanksgiving episode, it's we're not up at the crack of dawn on Thanksgiving. Hell no! To give you this murder not even podcast, the, not even the week of. No, it's ten forty a.m. on the seventh. Mm-hmm. It's a good day. It's a great day. So Ashley, I know you very very well, and everything. <laughs> yes, more than you know yourself. I'm just <laughs> no, you're a mystery to me. But um, everything about this case will make you want to jump off of this couch and go take a long hot shower. It's just really yucky. Really? Yes, it's very yucky. Yucky, okay. So today I will be sharing the story of Gilberto Valley, also known as the Cannibal Cop. Ooh, Cannibal Cop. Mm-hmm. You never thought you would see those two words together, huh? And this is a Thanksgiving themed story like I told you to do. Yes, this is, and you'll see why. I'll make it very clear. There's one particular sentence. Okay. In the summer of 2012, Kathleen Mangan's worst nightmare became a reality. One day when her husband wasn't home, she opened up her laptop and saw that her husband hadn't logged out of whatever he was looking at. She had noticed right before all of this that he had begun clearing his search history and this understandably made her a little suspicious. Oh, so she was like regularly checking his yes. computer and noticed he was deleting that? Yes, and you'll see why. But basically they share a laptop and she had every right to oh, gotcha. have her suspicions. Yeah. No, I raised. didn't mean yeah. to be judgmental. I just was like... No, you'll, you'll oh, just okay. see. I don't want to give away anything. Okay. But on that particular day, he clearly had forgotten to hide whatever he had been searching for. Kathleen clicked on the two little files on the laptop desktop and found that while the images were not loading, they did show the URL that the pictures had come from. She obviously clicks on this link and and was taken directly to this porn website called Dark Fetish Network. Oh, no. Oh, Oh, no. And it just gets worse. I think at first she was trying to stay calm and remember that a lot of people liked S&M. And I mean, everyone was was currently obsessed with Fifty Shades of Grey at the time. I think it had come out the year before. So she was no, you know, she wasn't naive to the fact that this was some people's thing. Yeah, but it's also like, what was it called again? Dark Fetish Network. 
Yeah. Okay. So my mind didn't go to Fifty Shades of Grey. It yeah, went just, to like something super bad. Yeah. So, it wasn't like whips. It was dungeons. Well, that, I that's mean, how that's, my brain went. Well, I don't think dungeons are bad either. <laughs> I oh, don't, no, actually, I, I don't know you as well as I thought. <laughs> I meant, I meant like uh, illegal stuff. Like that's gotcha. where my mind went. Well, your mind's correct. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> Kathleen became sick to her stomach when she saw that the girl on the front page of the website was dead. So let's backtrack a little bit so I can give you a rundown on their marriage. Kathleen Mangan met Gilberto Valley on OkCupid in 2009. He was an upbeat, sweet cop that lived with his father in Queens, and she was working in East Harlem as a Teach for America recruit. He had a very normal childhood and he had always been popular and very well liked. He played baseball and made the Dean's List during his time at the University of Maryland. Gilberto appeared to be the total package and everything seemed too good to be true at first and their relationship got very, very serious very fast. So pretty early on, they moved in together and became dog parents to a bulldog. Aww. I know I had to add that in there for you. Kathleen loved the early stages of their relationship. He was a gentleman and he was always opening doors for her, just treated her like a princess. And they always had a great time together. She said that everything changed once she became pregnant. Gilberto, also, they also call him Gil, but I'm gonna call him Gilberto, I don't know him like that. Um, <laughs> he panicked and said that he couldn't do it. So basically uh, she gets pregnant, he backs off. He's like, this is just too much for me. Okay. Yeah, and she recalls him just seeming miserable and just inconvenienced by it all. Once the baby was born, Gilberto remained as disinterested as he was throughout the pregnancy. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, it's a worst nightmare for a mother. That's my worst nightmare. Yes. He never helped with the baby and he began to avoid her completely. I guess he would just go on the internet until like 4 or 5 a.m. and play video games instead of spending any time with his family. Oh, yuck. Yeah, yuck. When yeah. would he go to work? Yeah, <laughs> Wasn't he a cop? <laughs> yeah, so he would work a shift. We'll get into that, but he would work a shift until midnight. And then as soon as he got home, he would claim that he needed to wind down. And so instead of spending time, I mean, I guess his family might be sleeping at midnight, but he would just prolong that by staying on his laptop until dawn. Okay. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. So Kathleen said that their sex life fell apart and she couldn't figure out what was wrong. He rarely took any interest in sex. And when he did, he could never finish and would end up running to the bathroom. Uh, oh. Yeah, so it raises some questions. So she was like, am I not attractive enough? Or do I need to be doing more around the house? Um, uh, that's yeah. where her mind went? I know, I was like, you sweet thing. She's like, do I need to be doing you know more chores for this man? Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> she just didn't know what to do. And she, I mean, I don't blame her. She assumed that he was having an, an affair. Totally. Yeah. So her life came crashing down on her the day that she discovered her husband's search history. She confronted him about the sites that he had been visiting. And she wanted to know if this is what he really wanted and what she could do about it. Wait. Yeah. So she's approaching this like with such understanding and compassion, which, you know. But the, but the, yeah. But the page, but the, okay, Things change. hold on. You'll see. Hold on. You'll see. Things shift. You're referring to in the beginning of your story where she found the dead girl porn picture. Yeah. Yes. And she's saying, um, but you'll see what you'll see. So she even suggested that they go shopping for sex toys together. 
And he was super enthusiastic about this suggestion, I guess. And this gave Kathleen hope that things would start improving now that they had just communicated. Oh, <laughs> Kathleen. I know. So this didn't end up in a happily ever after all we had to do was talk it out sort of way. It didn't? No, shocker. So she couldn't get the images of the dead woman out of her head. And she knew that she had no choice but to do more research. She ended up installing a spyware on their laptop so that she could see what else her husband had been up to. Yeah. So, girlsinabind.com, fetlife.com, darkfetishnet.com. She saw all the websites her husband had been spending all of his time on. Okay, well, that doesn't, that's, again, that's not illegal stuff. There's no, nothing wrong with anyone who's into Oh, okay. Then, she discovered the instant message chats. Her husband had been sending images of her, her friends, and other people that she knew and read the detailed emails about what her husband wanted to do to her. Oh. He discussed tying her up by her feet, slitting her throat, and how fun it would be to watch the blood gush out of her. And if she screamed, he would just gag her. She knew that she had to leave and take her baby with her. Kathleen immediately booked their flights so that they could stay with her parents in Nevada. Once she was there, she logged into the spyware program again. Uh, yeah, so they live in New York, you said, in Queens? Yes, okay. and so she immediately booked flights just to get yeah. she and oh her child. God. She's she's scared. She just read of an course. email. Oh my God, I would be horrified. Absolutely, your husband wants to murder you. Oh. So she found countless images of women being sexually assaulted and brutally tortured. Doesn't stop there though. Uh, Google searches for things like human meat recipes, oh. how to chloroform a girl, and how to kidnap a woman amongst images of severed feet and tons of searches on asphyxiation. Oh my God. His nickname on these chat rooms was unfortunately Girl Meat Hunter. Oh, I oh know. my God. <laughs> oh, hey. It's just innocent, babe. <laughs> <laughs> it's just for fun <sighs> Kathleen knew that she needed to turn over the information that she had found over to the NYPD from there the FBI investigated the messages that he had sent on these sites on October 25th 2015 Gilberto Valley was arrested for conspiracy to commit kidnapping the transcripts were read in the courtroom and his wife was there to testify Kathleen discussed a particular email where her husband wanted to kidnap three women and rape them in front of each other to heighten their fear before cooking them alive over an open fire. Oh. She talked about all of the detailed messages she read describing her slow and painful death. But she wasn't the only woman that her husband fantasized about murdering and eating. There was a friend of his wife, his supervisor at the precinct, a few of his college friends, and a teenage girl that had just graduated from the high school that he had gone to. Mm. Gilberto fantasized about kidnapping a woman, then delivering her inside of a suitcase for a gang rape, then killing her and eating her. His search history full of images of women being bound and cooked. Transcripts describe how Gilberto wanted to eat girl meat for his Thanksgiving dinner and how tasty a woman's legs would look cooking in the oven. Oh, that's where your Thanksgiving yes, thing comes in. Yes, there it is. This is the paragraph. 
He went into great detail about how he would cook the women and that he planned on keeping them alive for as long as possible for optimal flavor, I guess. Oh. Wait. Yeah. Slow cooking, <laughs> Ash. Oh. Literally out of a horror movie. So he admitted that when he was younger, he was watching this TV show where a woman was being tied up and he found himself aroused. He discovered that he had this dark fantasy and he knew it would scare people if they knew. So he just kept that part of himself a secret throughout his life. These fantasies escalated and he discovered sites for individuals just like him. He explained, it's a sexual fetish. It's something I didn't choose. And it's something that I live with and that I'm fine with. That's not a fetish. <laughs> I'm that glad is, you're fine with uh, it, Gil. He's like, guys, I'm fine with it. You be it fine. <laughs> <laughs> I watched a YouTube video on True Crime Daily. And he said that he would get home after working a shift around midnight. And he would need to cool off, like a decompress. So he would log on to these chat rooms and stay on until dawn insisting that his fantasies stopped there and would have never become a reality. Mm -hmm. In the same video, he admitted to pleasuring himself to the thought of his wife being chloroformed and laid out on a platter with an apple in her mouth. Ew. And he said that this fantasy began right away after meeting her. Like, oh my God. After the first date sort of thing. How do you know, um, like how long they've been together at this point when she finds all this stuff? So I think he, they got married after two years and then she discovered all of this. I want to say nine months after giving birth to the baby. So they'd been together for like three years, I want to say, give or take. Ugh. So I obviously did some Googling to see the transcripts. Highly oh. recommend, but also don't. Oh, really? That's <laughs> yes. like available? Oh, they're very available. Mm. And I needed to talk about this one particular exchange uh, between he and an email address named meatmarketman at rocketmail.com. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just chills. <laughs> the subject of the email is Kathleen is 26 and she's a teacher. His wife is named Kathleen. Just keep this in mind. This is about mm -hmm. her. So the exchange goes into detail about how much he would charge to sell his wife to this one man. He sends pictures of Kathleen and they're casually going back and forth about how women have a surprising amount of fat on them. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah, seriously, fuck you for fuck multiple you. reasons, but yeah. And that meat market man would prefer something more meaty. Meat market man. I know. <laughs> like what? How do you know these things? Like, I don't know if my imagination is I think just it's off. bullshit. It has to be bullshit. But basically in this transcript, um, if I'm recalling correctly, there was uh, three women involved in this particular email and he was just sending images of all of them. And he's like, do you like this one more? Or do you want the petite one more? And they kind of landed on the fact that Kathleen, his wife, was like the best you know, pick for his needs, his, <sighs> his cooking needs. <sighs> yeah. Um, but also side note. Um, you know how when you write out an email address and it creates a hyperlink? Mm -hmm. So I accidentally clicked on the meat man's email oh. and it created a new message. And I just instantly go into a panic because, I mean. <laughs> because you almost emailed him? I almost, I almost emailed meat, meat market, market man, man at rocketmail.com. <laughs> no. I was like, this is the last thing I want to be engaging with. Mm -mm. So this is when things get a little more complicated. He insisted on the fact that these were just fantasies and he never actually acted on any of it. So why was he arrested? And is it even legal to put him in prison if they were just things that he discussed and never committed? Um, 
I have my opinions. I'll get into that. Don't okay, you worry. Okay. But they, like, so at this point, there's like no evidence or proof that he had done anything. Correct. It's just verbal at this point. It's just, it's just fantasy. Like this is just based off of what she has found. Yes. And on- the FBI has found on his computer. Oh. So his insistence that they were just fantasies did not work for him, and he was found guilty in 2013. Oh, okay. At his sentencing hearing, he made an apology to the women who testified, a.k.a. the women that he described wanting to murder and eat, by the way. (laughs) He's like, so sorry. I know, sorry, that was my bad. He said, I just hope that they know they were never in danger. I would never do the things I talked about on the internet, never. Okay. (sighs) Okay. So while he was locked up, his wife filed for divorce. Oh, really? I know. Shocker. Turn wow. events. Wow. She, she gave up quick. Yeah, seriously. Women just run these days. <laughs> um, and she was granted full custody of their daughter. Oh, thank God. I forgot they had a kid. Yes, they do. Um, so I thought his story would just stop there. But only 21 months into a sentence, I'm going to butcher this name, but I'm going to give it my very best shot. Um, Judge Paul G. Gardefi. Gardef of federal district court overturned his conviction. He stated that the things that Gilberto said were just fantasy role play online and not grounds for imprisonment. Uh, um. Mm -hmm. So when he was released, he came forward and expressed that all of this ruined his life and that he hasn't been able to see his child since his wife left him. Yeah. Because his wife understandably thinks that he's going to kill them and eat them. Yeah. So in my head, I'm like, dude, Maybe you should have spent more time with your wife and baby in a little less time on torture porn websites. Yeah. But I'm not a life coach. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what do you know? Seriously, I'm not certified. He spoke at CrimeCon in New Orleans in 2019. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Something we will go to one day. This, wait, wait, wait. Yes. This, like, guy who was, what's his name again? Gil? Gil. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait. Gil, the girl meat hunter, spoke at CrimeCon? Correct, and we weren't there. Last year? Yes, in New Orleans. Okay, I was under the impression that like the people who speak there, like I know Paul Holes Mm -hmm. was there and he spoke. Yeah. Why, why was, what did he say? Why was he there? Why did they allow him to do that? Well, so (laughs) he's there. Was he paid? He had, I mean, he had to have been. This guy's money. You'll you'll see. So he acknowledged that he knows people see him as a danger and a sick monster. But while he he says he takes responsibility for all the awful things he said. Okay, sure. Yeah, he takes full responsibility. He firmly believes that he did not deserve to be convicted of conspiracy to kidnap. He said, I understand people don't like what I did. But the question here is, is not liking me reason enough to have me in prison for the rest of my life? Yeah, it's not a question of liking you or not, Gil. Seriously. <laughs> it's not a question of do I want to have a beer with you? No, Gil. Oh, my People God. are scared of you, bud. So he explained that he often gets uh, threatening messages from strangers saying that they wish someone would kill him. And his whole point is, you can say you want to kill me, but you didn't. Therefore, you shouldn't be punished for it. Just like my case. Okay. Okay. Wait, so I get, I get you're trying to get creative with it, but. Uh, no, yeah. dude. No. At CrimeCon, a private and get and, getting all riled up. Yeah, good. I want. Yeah, I know. we should be. We should be riled up. My bot. The bonds of my feet are slippery. <laughs> at CrimeCon, a private investigator named Catherine Townsend stated, 
I'm extremely passionate about this case because I think the country is going down a dark and dangerous road if we start prosecuting people for thought crimes. You can be a Trump supporter. She has to be. (laughs) You can hate Gil personally. You can think what he did was wrong. But it's these moments when defending our freedom of speech is the most important. It's easier to defend freedom of speech when you agree with everything. It's hard when something... It's hard when it's something disturbing like this. Okay. I have my reasons for having the judgments that I do, and I'll get into that. So maybe I'm narrow-minded, but if my husband was fantasizing about kidnapping, assaulting, murdering, and eating me and other women, I think I would need him to be in jail. Yeah, you are naive. Yeah, seriously. I'm so close-minded. You're (laughs) narrow-minded. You're closed off. Can you kind of see where I'm coming from though, Ashley? (laughs) What is wrong with you? So, but who is to say that these fantasies won't escalate into something real? Dude, of course. Like it's most murderers did a great deal of fantasizing before committing their. Of course. That's literally how it starts. That is how it starts. These manifestos. I mean, Jeffrey, I don't even want to, the list is endless of all these killers that documented and BTK, all of them writing out explicit details of what they want to do to women. Okay, so the thing is, if he had sent, if he had said these things to his wife or to these other women that he's he was targeting, that would be considered a threat. Absolutely. But because she happened upon them or whatever you want to say, she, mm-hmm. she sought out the things that he was saying and he wasn't saying them to her directly or to Therefore, these other women. Therefore, not a threat. How, like, it's still, it could be plotting. So, like, it's not, a, I don't feel like it's a matter of free speech. It's like, this is how you are planning. It's like, this is a plot. This is a... And anyone could say, oh, well, yeah, you caught me plotting something, but I was never going to go through with it. That is like, there's no way to prove that it's not relevant. Like the the point is you were saying this, you were doing, you were thinking about this and talking about the logistics and conversing with other people about it. Like the meat market man. Absolutely. At rocketmail.com. <laughs> no, but what's upsetting is like when you think about people that want to commit or plan on committing school shootings, and then you find a detailed description of what you want to do and how you're going to do it in one of the kids lockers Mm -hmm. so we're just not going to address that because it's a fantasy apparently yeah exactly like that's why what that investigator what what was her name Catherine Townsend okay Catherine that's why what she's her argument's not it's that it's like I I see I want to see like what she means but it's so well I think she's trying to say there's a lot of gray area yeah but I don't really know if i agree with I feel like it's more black and white when we're talking about violence and killing and hurting and it, when you're talking about illegal stuff mm-hmm. well, I mean how I, I see think that it, changes everything how I see it is the intention of inciting violence is not to be covered under freedom of speech I don't yeah. believe that one goes under falls Absolutely. under the other I totally yeah that's what I'm trying to say yeah. I have all this feelings. champagne all these so. feelings <laughs> <laughs> feelings and champs mm-hmm. so the fact that he is a cop fantasizing about kidnapping and murdering people is a whole other issue. That's even scarier. Yes. Yeah. So people are supposed to trust you and feel safe around you. But He's supposed to keep us safe. Yes, but you're desiring the idea um, of murdering and cooking yeah. humans. Yeah. So are we supposed to just trust his word when he said that nothing would have ever come of this? And of course, this case has baffled almost everyone that's come across it. And according to Catherine Townsend raises the very important question of what is the line between intent to do harm and fantasy? This is a tough case for numerous reasons, but especially because I understand 
not wanting to be punished for our thoughts and not our actions, but also how do you really, really, really know that this couldn't have ended badly? But that's where it's like, it's, it's not thoughts. No, like it's he's, not. He's, he wrote it down. He was speaking about it. He was ta- he was talking to the meat market man. In elaborate detail. Like, yeah, it's it's not thoughts. If we're talking about thoughts, like nobody, no one knows our thoughts unless you share them. So I, it's like I the moment you're speaking, you know, and saying it, it's like. We can sit on this couch and think all the things that we want to think. No one can take that from us. But it's putting it in writing, putting it out there. You don't know that meat market man and the countless other people he was interacting with you don't know that they don't actually have the full intention to commit this and now absolutely they have images of your wife yeah they know where you live you yeah. know they're, the job the age everything about her and you're trying to tell me that you had nothing how do you know what their intentions were yeah that's another great point if if let's just say for argument's sake gill was never going to do anything. Mm-hmm. He is now sharing he's making these people in his life these women in his life accessible to strangers online like the meat market man at what is it rocket mortgage or something yes yeah rocket mortgage no don't hate us we might need you as a sponsor one day (laughs) rocketmail.com rocketmail.com yeah Yeah. the meat market man like he you don't know who the fuck that is Mm -hmm. that could be an fbi agent who's going to arrest you or it could be someone who's actually going to come and cook your wife well what what about this isn't a matter of free speech it's like that's just not even or his his opinions he's now he's talking to someone else about this multiple people right not just the meat market man oh it's countless other people and it's even like that one tv show and i don't remember the name of it when they oh to catch a predator you oh, know when like they, yes when yes those, yes oh my god yes chat rooms chris hansen exactly so mm-hmm. if you're able to do that as an agent or a, whatever an investigator yeah. you're talking to you know child rapists predators and there have been cases where those people haven't been convicted because they didn't actually go through with it but who is to say that it wouldn't have happened if, you know, Chris wasn't there to stop it from happening? Um, so you may be wondering what Gilberto is doing now. Uh, no shock that I the, am. I am wondering. Yeah. I'm curious. What are you up to, Gil? Where are you, Gil? What are you so, doing? So no shock that the NYPD fired him. They're like, you know what? We don't think you're a qualified cop anymore. Um, but he has found a new career that he's hoping will make him some money. Like speaking at fucking conventions? I'm sure that is one of them. Um, in 2018, he released an incredibly graphic and violent horror novel about a group of sadists that kidnapped two young women. Oh, yes. oh my God. So he's just running with it. He- oh, okay. The book, the <laughs> book is called A Gathering of Evil. And it really dives into his obsession with kidnapping and eating women. But he insists that it's all a fantasy. Um, and he said that if the book makes him money, then there will be a sequel. He based there to God, this doesn't make any money. I agree with that. Um, and I was trying to be like compassionate about this and not approach it in a judgmental way because on the off chance that, you know, one of our listeners has these fantasies, I'd never want to we don't want you listening to this shit. We're going <laughs> to go ahead and judge you. Don't listen to this it's shit. It's just not okay. And I feel You're like- You're not welcome here. When you have those sort of thoughts about killing women and it's something that like genuinely arouses you, then don't, in, don't begin a career in which you're supposed to help women and help anyone. Yeah. I don't understand. I feel like you're putting yourself in a position to make that fantasy grow. And I feel like going on those- I, I guess I don't know how that really works because I don't really have any- 
deviant. You, you don't have these fantasies? No, I'm, I don't fall under this category. Okay. So I guess that's why I'm saying maybe I'm naive about this. But yeah, you are naive. If I were to want to murder people and I thought that was hot, I don't think that I would go on these websites and make it grow. I would want that. <laughs> okay. To- no, 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 no. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's literally, no- that's exactly what you would do because you're, if you're inclined to this, you don't have, like you and I think this is wrong. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what that like conscience, that like moral like compass part, like that's missing. It doesn't in apply. Someone who's, yeah, it doesn't yeah. apply. So you're trying to look at it through your eyes, but that's not going to make any sense because it's just it doesn't make sense for someone that. who doesn't feel that way. Yeah. So it's I don't know. It's, it's like trying to put bit, your you put yourself in a you know sadistic serial killer's shoes. It's just not going to work. Yeah, because you just we don't can't. get it. Yeah. But he always claims that he feels so much guilt and that he you know wishes that this had never happened in my head I'm like Gil you just don't you didn't want to be caught you would have still been on these chat rooms living a secret life if your wife hadn't happened to go on your laptop that day you know yeah and obviously I think because he fucking wrote a book like detailing all of these things he's trying to make money off of it like I don't think he feels fucking guilt no no, he feels regret that he got caught that's it but he now he's trying to monetize Mm -hmm. this well, when you look at interviews of him, he's he seems genuinely annoyed when people question him. And he's just like, I, that's not who I am. I want to start fresh. And it's like, then don't write a book about it, <laughs> No, bud. no, no, no. <laughs> You're drawing this out. Gil. Get a clue, Gil. So this is my Thanksgiving case because he did write about wanting to eat a woman for Thanksgiving dinner. I hope you caught that. It's a little stretch, but I it's yeah. fine. There's it's one, totally fine. There's <laughs> one element of this story that applies to Thanksgiving. Yeah. And... This is, I mean, another side note. So, you know how I haven't been able to eat, um, I haven't been able to stop eating chicken pot pies this week. Yes. I happened to have been eating one when I was redoing all my research. <laughs> oh, no. And I immediately, like, <laughs> mid-bite, halfway through, I was like, I think I just cured myself. Like, I, that's, that's, <laughs> that's positive. It took away my appetite for them. So. Yeah, so a little good came out of this. Absolutely. So, um, that is the story of Gilberto Valley the cannibal cop you did a great job thanks Ash. My, my palms are a little sweaty and i don't mm-hmm. know if it's because of the chimpagni shikpons or the <laughs> irritation yes or if it's all of it it's probably a combination of both i have i just have so many thoughts i know i have a lot of opinions about it and, it, and i always try to approach things with a you know all of our brains are so different i don't want to be a judgmental human but at the same time you have to understand and be compassionate about the fact that if you think that it's hot for a woman to be stuffed into a suitcase and delivered for a gang rape, then, you know, I don't have all the compassion in the world for you. Yeah. Anything that harms someone, mm-hmm. that's illegal. Like, it's just, that is wrong. Absolutely. Harming Consensual anyone. harm. You know, oh, well, yeah, like that's different. Can, cons- yeah, you can get as wild as you want if both parties are consenting and it's safe and, and you're do- like whatever. But Absolutely. it's like doing anything against someone's will, harming mm-hmm. someone against their will, all of that stuff. It's just like, <sighs> well, the thing that literally gets him going is the fear aspect of it and the woman being out of control. And that's why he really puts an emphasis in his Google searches on being bound and chloroform and yeah. kidnapping and things like that so there's incapacitating obvious, exactly someone. in literal death like he he likes the ugh, i wouldn't it's yeah horrific so. okay well you did you did a great job you have me all riled up yeah good um i can't wait for your story okay well my story it's not gonna rile anyone up <laughs> my story is 
not violent at all. No one gets hurt. No one dies. There's no murder. Um, this is an upbeat Thanksgiving episode. It is. And it's also similar to you. I gave you the task of finding a Thanksgiving themed. Mm-hmm. I, I guess we both figured out that was much harder than it seemed. So even though he made one remark about killing someone and eating them for Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Mine technically has nothing to do with Thanksgiving, but it happened the night before. So I am doing the story of D.B. Cooper. I have never heard about this before. Wait, are you being for real? No, I'm being for real. I don't think I have. The hi- the hijacking story of D.B. Cooper? I know like bits and pieces, but nothing. Like I couldn't tell this story off the top of my head right now. I don't wow. know enough. Well, I couldn't either. (laughs) Which is why I did my research and I wrote it down on my laptop. (laughs) Um, So I think like typically I like in most stories I do so much research. Every source is like there's way too many to list in the Mm -hmm. beginning. That's why we always have them all like on our website. But um, this one I... Literally, do you watch Parks and Park and Rec? Parks and I Rec. Do. do you watch? Okay, I cut you off. Yes. Yeah. Okay, but you do. <laughs> um, every time I say literally, like Brett and I are always like literally. <laughs> so I literally copy and pasted everything uh-huh. uh, from Wikipedia. So I'm basically reading you the Wikipedia page Perfect. <laughs> on DB. But at least Cooper. you gave him credit right there. Oh yeah. Oh my we god. We can't get sued, right? Now. Oh no, I. I donate money regularly to Wikipedia. Do you really? <laughs> yes, especially now that we're doing this podcast because like I wouldn't know like what a you weird should, fun fact about you. Yeah, you should also donate to, to Wiki. Wiki- yes. All right, shoot. Can I write it off tax or tax write off? Maybe, I don't know. No. Anyways, so um I just I want to be really clear. I literally copy and paste it, <laughs> which I don't normally do. Like normally Fair. I do a ton of research and then I say it all kind of in my words and in my order that I want to tell the story. But this was like, if you just, you could probably pull up Wikipedia and read it as I talk. But they did so well that you decided just yeah. to take theirs. It yeah. was so thorough. And so like, it it was just If so it ain't brokes, or if it ain't brokes, <laughs> don't fix it. If it ain't brokes, don't fix <laughs> it. Okay. So our story begins on November 24th, 1971. It's the day before Thanksgiving. So that's how I am tying this mm-hmm. in. And uh, the Portland International Airport is busy. A middle-aged man who identified himself as Dan Cooper used cash to purchase a one-way ticket for Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305, which was supposed to be a 30-minute flight to Seattle. Witnesses described him as a quiet man in his 40s, about 5'10", 180 pounds, with close-set eyes and swarthy skin. Okay, what's that mean? I'm so glad he's not exfoliating. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for some reason, I thought swarthy meant pale. I thought that meant drunk. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I don't know why I thought it said pale. Yeah. But it actually means a darker skin tone. Wow, we're both very wrong. I know. So after I looked that up, I was like, oh, well, thank God I looked. And then I was like, this happened 49 years ago. Why am I acting like I might find this guy? Like, why does it matter if I know what that means or not? He was wearing. A business suit with a white shirt and black skinny tie and carried a small black briefcase. People used to dress up for flights back then. So I guess that's not that weird. But if I saw that, I'd be like, terrorist. I know. He boarded, took his seat in the rear of the plane and ordered a bourbon and soda while waiting for takeoff. 
They took off on time at 2.50 p.m., and within a few minutes, this man, Cooper, reached toward the nearest flight attendant, a woman named Florence Schaffner, who was sitting in her seat, like, you know, the little fold-down seats, and he handed her a folded piece of paper. (laughs) Can I have your number, Florence? (laughs) Check yes or check no. That's the thing. (laughs) She assumed it was his phone number. Oh, okay. So right in front of him, she drops it into her bag without looking at it. Oh, no. (laughs) And when I read that, I was just like, I just started laughing because I would have done the same thing or like I would have assumed he was handing me trash and just like throwing it away. I would have immediately opened it. Yeah. A love interest? Wow. So after seeing her dump the paper in her bag without opening it, he leaned forward again and calmly whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. (sighs) Why do you have to write a note then? Can you just hold her? I know, he just whispered. (laughs) I'm going to write it down and also tell you. (laughs) The exact wording on the note is unknown because at some point during this whole ordeal, Cooper took the note back. But Florence claimed it was written in very neat, all capital letters with a felt-tipped pen. She says that it stated that Cooper had a bomb in his briefcase. So after he watched her read it, he asked her to sit down in the seat next to his, which she did. She asked to see the bomb, and he readily opened his briefcase to show her four red cylinders on top of four more cylinders attached to red wires and a large battery. Maybe that's really what bombs look like, but it sounds like so Hollywood to me. It does. It sounds like a prop. (laughs) Yeah, but maybe that means Hollywood just designs the movie bombs off of real bombs. Based off of the real ones, (laughs) you would think that they would. What I'm trying to say is that I know nothing about bombs. I'm not a bomb expert. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that, so I just wanted to clarify. (laughs) He closes the briefcase and gave her his demands to take to the pilots. He said he wanted $200,000 in negotiable American currency, two primary parachutes, two reserve parachutes, and a fuel truck waiting on the tarmac in Seattle to refill the plane after landing. I didn't know what negotiable American currency meant. Yeah, my brain went there too. Yeah, but apparently it means like he, well, he probably meant, they don't know this for a fact, but he probably meant that he didn't care or have like a preference in terms of the bill supplied like 20s or 50s or 100s. He was like cool with any of it. He just wanted a total of 200,000. Okay, so in my head it went either I'll take euros, for example, (laughs) or I will take, I don't think euros were a thing back then. Um, Or if it's, they weren't because, well, I don't know. Yours anything. is new now. Is, yeah. Oh, well, Google. I know nothing. Anyways, anyways. So, <laughs> and now we're sharing the tale of euros. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you a brief history lesson yeah, on euros. Um, oh, and 200,000 in 1971 would have just been under 1.3 million in 2020. Wow. Yeah. So it was a, it was a big ask. Okay. Yeah. So Florence went to the pilot's told them what was going on. And when she went back to Cooper, he was waiting in his seat with his sunglasses on, which is like annoying to me. Yeah, it is. I don't know why it, yeah, I don't know why it bugs me so much because like I, like when I see people wear sunglasses on planes, even though I do it sometimes, Mm -hmm. like if it's really sunny, like, I don't, there's something about it that bugs me. And I think drama, dramatic. Yeah. It feels like very diva. It does. And so. Especially if you're on like a Southwest flight. (laughs) You know, or Legion Air. (laughs) Yeah. Spirit. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Um, Florence described Cooper as, quote, calm, polite, and well-spoken. 
The pilots informed air traffic controllers in Seattle, who in turn informed local and federal authorities. The CEO of the airline instructed flight staff to cooperate with the hijacker and approve the ransom payment. This flight was only meant to be 30 minutes, but in order to give the authorities time to gather all that Cooper had requested and assemble uh, you know, enough emergency personnel at the airport, the other 35 passengers on board were told that there would be a delay in their arrival due to a, quote, minor mechanical difficulty. And then they proceeded to circle above Puget Sound for two hours. Oh my God, my anxiety. But also, if it's a passenger plane of 35 people. Yeah, so it's already not full. How are they not noticing that any of this is happening? Because it, he, Cooper was really calm. It wasn't a big dramatic thing. Every, it was very calm. Okay, so they, he could have been like, I need an Advil. Does anyone have an ad? Like, he, he was like doing a normal ask. If that, Anyways, just cut this out. Oh, so. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that like, Initially, like what I read was like initially the the passengers were not told what was going on so as to like keep them calm. Keep them calm, yeah. But I mean, two a thirty minute flight for went on for two hours, and they're what they claimed. Like I would have been a total Karen because we would have had some questions. Yeah, because it's like if you or if you're claiming what they said was minor mechanical difficulty so it's like if we have a minor mechanical difficulty Land. why are, yeah why are we flying for two hours so anyways one of the other flight attendants a woman named tina muck either mucklow or mucklow i don't know her name is tina stated that cooper seemed familiar with the area that they were flying over and at one point looked out the window and said quote looks like Tacoma down there. So he like he could recognize where he was. Where he was from an from from an aerial point. Okay. Um he also accurately told her that McCord Air Force Base was at the time in 1971, I guess it's not the case anymore, was approximately a 20-minute drive from Seattle Tacoma Airport. So that and you know recognizing the Tacoma area um that all leads people to think that maybe he was an Air Force veteran because he, you know, knew what I mean? like he knew, yeah, he knew the distance between the airport and the Air Force base and he could recognize things from the air, I guess, which I'm not like super impressed by because like I, I know when I fly over like the Bay Area where that's I grew the ocean. up, I know <laughs> there's the stadium, you know? Yeah, I can, I, I. When, when I've circled enough over an area that I'm familiar with, I can find it. I can find it when we're landing in LAX, too. So it's, I don't know. Well, what's annoying to me is he's hijacking a plane, but he's, like, taking the time to be like, and that is the... He's like, hey, would you look over there? There's Tacoma. And then I grew up around there. It's yeah. just stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's a little... It's annoying. But that's what they all say. He was just, like, calm and polite and like so they i mean they were and, and they're circling for two hours they're probably chatting it just up just trying to figure out something to talk about yeah and she said uh, tina the flight attendant tina she said he was very nice during the whole flight she said quote he seemed rather nice he was never cruel or nasty he was thoughtful and calm all the time and she's like and now we're celebrating our 30th <laughs> wedding anniversary <laughs> so cooper ordered a second bourbon and soda he paid his tab, and then he tried to give the flight attendant the change as a tip. Oh my God, Coop. Yeah. He even suggested to the flight crew that if they wanted, he could request meals for them to be delivered with his demands while on the ground in Seattle so that they could eat dinner. 
So this wasn't like a violent hijack. No. This is like they he just wants his money and he, he just wants, wants to go. Yeah, he wants money and he wants to jump out of this plane. Okay. Um so just a spoiler alert in case you don't already know. No one dies, no one gets hurt. He doesn't harm anybody. Um I don't know. I mean I mean we shouldn't support anything criminal, but like he did it as pleasant have, as yeah. possible. I don't have anything against DB Cooper. No. So authorities provided military grade parachutes. But Cooper denied them and requested civilian-type parachutes with manual rip cords. So those were obtained by a nearby skydiving school somewhere in Seattle. After confirming that his demands were met, Cooper agreed to let the pilots land at Seattle-Tacoma Airport at 5.39 p.m. And it was dark by then, so Cooper instructed them to taxi the plane to an isolated but well-lit area of the tarmac. And he also insisted that all of the window shades be pulled down so as deter any snipers from trying to take him out while they were on the ground. Okay. The airline's operations manager, a man named Al Lee, changed into civilian clothes because he was worried that his uniform would look like a, like like maybe Cooper would mistake him for um, like a, a police officer or something like that. Uh, he approached the aircraft with a bag of money and the parachutes which I guess means the flight crew declined his offer of dinner. Yeah, seriously. Once he had his demands in hand, he ordered all 35 passengers and two of the flight attendants to leave the plane. While the plane was being refueled, Cooper went over the instructions he had for the next flight with the pilots. So the next part I'm about to say is a whole bunch of stuff that I don't understand at all. And like most of the story, I just copy and pasted it from Wiki. So... um. Cooper instructed the pilots to follow a southeast course toward Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, which was approximately 100 knots, uh, which is 150 miles per hour, Okay. at a maximum 10,000-foot altitude. He further specified that landing gear remain deployed in the takeoff landing position, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. I don't know what any of that means. This dude had to have had a history in this field because how else would you know to do this stuff? Definitely. You know, like, like this, yeah. This and I'll, I'll get I'll get into that more. So the pilots informed Cooper that flying to Mexico City from Seattle would require a fuel stop. So after discussing a few options, they all agreed that they make a fuel stop in Reno, Nevada. The rear staircase of the plane was left open, and Cooper told the pilots to leave it that way during takeoff. But they insisted that wasn't safe and that they should close the staircase. So Cooper was like, well, it actually is safe, but okay, fine, close it, and I'll just open it again while we're in the air. Um, so I'm going to show you a picture of what I mean by the rear stairs being open. Like when you board a plane on the tarmac sort of situation? No. No? Cool, it's cool. Not, it's <laughs> Very cool. I'm going to show you, okay. and then you can describe it. It looks like the staircase is coming out of the plane's butt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's not like in today's... It's normally in the side. It's normally in the side now. Um, this is like literally like if the plane, if the, the rear of the plane was pooping... It's what it would look like. That's what it would look like, yeah. Cool, we're on the same page about that. Yeah. So at 7.40 p.m., the plane takes off again. There are a total of five people on board, two pilots, one flight attendant, and one flight engineer, and then obviously the hijacker. So it's 7.40 p.m. He's going to jump in the dark? 
Yeah, I mean, it oh, was scary. at, at 5.39 is when they landed in Seattle, and it was already dark by then. Yeah, because it's Thanksgiving time of the year. It's dark at 1.30 p.m. <laughs> yes, exactly. So during the flight, two fighter jets from a nearby Air Force base shadowed the passenger plane, one above and one below. And Wikipedia says that both were out of Cooper's sight, so I guess it means they were, like, directly above and directly below the hijacked plane. Mm-hmm. So not long after takeoff, Cooper tells the flight attendant to go inside of the cockpit and close the door behind her. As she was doing this, she watched Cooper tie something around his waist. So at approximately 8 p.m., a warning light inside of the cockpit lit up, which told the crew that the rear staircase had been opened. Mm -hmm. The plane's butt. The plane's butt had been opened. The crew asked Cooper via uh, the intercom if he needed assistance, which was so polite, Mm -hmm. uh, and he declined. At 8.13 p.m., a sudden upward movement from the tail end of the plane happens, which leads most people to believe that was the moment Cooper jumped. It was so extreme that the pilots had to, to like, readjust the plane to, oh, wow. st- to keep it level. So despite there ending up being a total of five jets, uh, it says surrounding the plane, but and so I picture them, like, literally being, like, really close to the plane it wasn't like that like some of them were like four minutes behind the plane like geese in flight yeah so but but there was a total of five jets uh encircling the hijacked plane after takeoff from seattle and the fact that they think they know the very moment that he jumped none of the pilots in the surrounding jets witnessed cooper's jump from the plane and no one could pinpoint exactly where the plane was when his jump occurred which sounded crazy to me because I was like, what the hell? How that like that's why you were following the plane. How could you all miss it? Mm-hmm. But then I read that, you know, it was nighttime. Cooper was wearing all black and he likely jumped into a dark and isolated area of land. So I guess it's not that crazy. We couldn't have done it. So no, we can't judge. After landing in Reno at 10:15 p.m., FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police boarded the plane to confirm that the hijacker was no longer on board. And spoiler alert, he was long gone. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a huge investigation begins. Authorities picked up over 65 fingerprints on the plane. They found Cooper's uh, clip-on tie and mother-of-pearl tie clip on board, as well as two of the four parachutes that he had requested. They also found a total of eight Raleigh cigarette butts. But at some point, those cigarette butts were lost, and they've never turned up, which, like, really sucks, because if they still had them, they'd probably be... Yeah, they'd have DNA testing now. Um, Oh, also, one of the parachutes left behind had been opened, and Cooper had removed suspension lines that were cut, like, from the canopy of it. And it's believed that probably... that's probably what he was using to tie the bag of ransom money around his waist. Mm-hmm. And that's what the flight attendant saw him tying around him before she locked herself in the cockpit with the rest of the crew. So authorities interviewed over 800 suspects, witnesses from Portland and Seattle, and then, of course, every single person who interacted with Cooper. Even though he had identified himself in Portland as Dan Cooper, one of the suspects interviewed was a low-level criminal in Portland named D.B. Cooper. So even though he was almost promptly ruled out as a suspect, mm-hmm. a reporter mistakenly printed that the hijacker had identified himself as D.B. Cooper. After a second reporter repeated the mistake, the name has just sort just of stuck, stuck forever. Yeah, Trying to pinpoint a specific search area turned out to be 
insanely hard to do. The FBI's page on Cooper on their website states, quote, a precise search area was difficult to define as even small differences differences in estimates of the aircraft's speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path, which varied significantly by location and altitude, changed Cooper's projected landing point considerably. So not knowing how long he was in free fall before opening his parachute was also a very big factor. That was unfortunately a big mystery since nobody saw him jump. Mm-hmm. So part of the investigation resulted in the same pilots from the hijacked plane recreating the same flight path from Seattle to Reno. FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the rear stairs, and it resulted in recreating that same sudden upward movement that the crew felt from the tail end of the plane at 8.13. So it's almost guaranteed that Cooper jumped at that moment. So to make things more complicated, and this this made me feel bad for judging like those uh, the pilot, like the other jets yeah, yeah, not yeah. seeing <laughs> Cooper jump, During the moment that they believe he jumped, they had been flying through a very heavy rainstorm directly above the Lewis River in southwestern Washington. So now that I know that, I didn't know that when I was initially judging them. Now that I know that, I'm like, oh. You judge less. Yeah, I judge so much less. So obviously a really big search of the Lewis River and the surrounding areas happened as soon as they narrowed in on that as being the likely jump point. Everything was searched by boat and foot and helicopters. They found broken treetops in various plastic pieces that resembled a parachute, but it was never confirmed to be relevant to the hijacking, so didn't really find anything. A month after the hijacking, the FBI released lists containing all of the serial numbers on the ransom money to law enforcement around the world, as well as every other major like casino and racetracks and other businesses that routinely dealt with like large sums of cash. Okay, very smart. Yeah, yeah, but it was a month after. Oh, okay. So because spent it all by now. Yeah, yeah. So not long after this, those serial numbers were released to the general public, and it didn't, it didn't do shit to help, and it actually just invited a lot of scams. Two assholes used uh, two counterfeit bills with the appropriate serial numbers to swindle thirty thousand dollars from a reporter who thought he was getting an interview with Cooper himself. Uh, Northwest Orient, the airline Cooper hijacked, which was, um, it's now Delta. Oh, interesting. The big cookies. Yeah. (laughs) I love the Delta cookies. Sponsor us. Yeah. Uh, So Northwest Orient, the airline Cooper hijacked, offered up a reward of up to $25,000 if the money was found, which would be around $146,000 in 2020. Uh, They also, they were the ones who paid the ransom. The in, airline. Oh, okay. But, and so I didn't, I always believe, I, I don't I know. Thought, I always thought like the, if someone ransomed something, the government. I thought the same thing that? too. I thought it was United States of America came together. So I think maybe now that's the case. Yeah. But for some reason, the airline had to pay up. Our tax dollars are just playing, paying random ransoms around yeah. the world. <laughs> you know, not in the world, but anyways. So after the first search, they had to wait until everything thawed again in the spring of 1972 before they could do another search. They spent a total of 36 days searching over March and April of 72, again with no luck. At one point, two local women stumbled upon skeletal remains in an abandoned structure, but it turned out to be the skeleton of a teenage girl who had been reported missing a few weeks prior and had ultimately been murdered. Oh my God. So from 1973 to 74, a few different newspapers offered rewards ranging from 1,000 to 5,000, which today would be between 6,000 and 30,000. 
for the first person to give the papers any of the ransom money, even if it was just a singular bill with a matching serial number, but nothing came of it. So after all of this, it's determined sometime later that everyone was significantly off in their calculations regarding the jump zone. So all of the extensive searches done in the first area ended up probably being the wrong location entirely. Oh my God, I'm wasted. Only four pieces of evidence, two definite and two potential, linked to D.B. Cooper have turned up from 1978 to 2017. Uh, The first one, in November 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aft stairs, which is the technical term for what I kept referring to as the rear stairs, of a 727, which uh, was the plane that he hijacked, Mm -hmm. was found by a deer hunter near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, which is well north of the area authorities had searched, but within the flight's basic flight path. Um, And then on Sunday, February 10th, 1980, almost 10 years after the hijacking, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront town known as Tana Bar, about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked in the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. Can you imagine being a kid and finding that? No. It'd be like finding treasure. The bills were significantly disintegrated, but still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Uh, Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90, all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. In 1986, after protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. Because again, the airline had to pay. They had to pay, yeah. (laughs) The FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Uh, Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for about $37,000. Wow. Yeah. Wait, so I I have a lot of questions, but maybe I should just let you finish because you might answer them. To date, none of the 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world. Their serial numbers remain available online for public search. The Columbia River ransom money and the air stair instruction placard remain the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking ever found outside of the aircraft. Do we think that he buried that money, you know, to hide and come back and get it? Or was it more like an accident where when he was jumping, it flew off and, you know, landed somewhere or... So I didn't end up including that in the story because it's a lot of really technical scientific um, like distance travel, discuss yeah, discussion that, yeah. of how it's disintegrated in the water and the sand and burying mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Um, I didn't include it because there's actually a ton of really technical stuff that's fascinating, but just it's too much to include in the all story. The theories, yeah. But if you go to the Wikipedia page, they go in detail about the um, about that question, and I think the consensus is that it was probably placed there. A considerable time after the hijacking. So that makes it more interesting. It does. Yeah. So this man, I mean, he was ultimately completely successful. Well, we'll get there. Cool. And then in 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believe to be potential evidence, what appears to be a decades old parachute strap in the Pacific Northwest. This was followed later in August 2017 with a piece of foam suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack. So the FBI announced in 2007 that three samples of DNA was found on Cooper's tie clip, but they couldn't determine if it was his DNA or someone else's. 
They also announced that Cooper had chosen the older of the two primary parachutes supplied to him rather than the technically superior professional sport parachute. And that from the two reserve parachutes, he actually selected a dummy, (gasps) which was an unusable unit with an inoperative ripcord intended for classroom demonstrations. They said it had clear markings identifying it to any experienced skydiver as non-functional. The FBI stressed that including the dummy reserve parachute, which was one of four obtained in haste from a Seattle skydiving school, was accidental, which... Like, I don't know if I believe that because yeah. they just said, well, if he was experienced, he would have noticed. And it's like, well, I You're mean, setting him up to ultimately die. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to make any enemies in the FBI, but yeah, I don't seriously, believe Seriously, don't that. come after us, but we have questions. Yeah. I mean, they had offered him military grade parachutes. And then when he declined them, I, I understand that he had to scramble to figure out where to get civilian parachutes. But like, you'd think that they would confirm that all of them were operable. All of them so. worked. They think the reason that he asked for four was that he was trying to give the authorities the impression that he would make a hostage jump with him, which would guarantee that they would provide safe and operable parachutes. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, then maybe it really was just an accident because the authorities are never going to like risk a hostage life. Yeah. But, but who knows? Eyewitness accounts suggested that Cooper was knowledgeable about flying technique, the aircraft and the terrain. He had chosen a 727 100 aircraft because it was ideal for bailout escape due to not only its aft air stair but also the high aftward placement of all three engines which allowed a reasonably safe jump despite the proximity of the engine exhaust okay i should clarify again this is one of those things that i copy and pasted that i don't yes, understand I say, did you write this one no 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 it had a single point fueling capability a then recent innovation that allowed all tanks to be refueled rapidly through a single fuel port it also had the ability, um, which was unusual for a commercial jet airliner, to remain in slow, low altitude flight without stalling. And Cooper knew how to control its airspeed and altitude without entering the cockpit where he could have been overpowered by the three pilots. So that, you know, further suggests he knows what he's talking yeah, about without thinking. even being in there. Um, in addition, Cooper was familiar with important details, such as the appropriate flap setting of 15 degrees, which was unique to that specific aircraft, and the typical refueling time. He knew that the aft air stair could be lowered during flight, which was a fact that was never disclosed to civilian flight crews since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make it necessary, and that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit. So like if he opens those rear, you know, butt stairs, Mm -hmm. the pilots in the cockpit can't do anything about it. So some of this knowledge was virtually unique to CIA paramilitary units. Ooh, fun twist. Yeah. The FBI has always kind of seemed skeptical um, and they've concluded that Cooper lacked crucial skydiving skills and experience. FBI Special Agent Larry Carr Uh, who was the leader of the Bureau's D.B. Cooper investigation team from 2006 to 2016, said, We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We concluded after a few years this was simply not true. A Boeing 727 at flaps 15 degrees and lightweight probably flies at 172 miles per hour. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with 172 mile per hour wind in his face without while wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was just simply too risky. 
He also missed that his reverse parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked. Uh, He also did not bring a helmet or request one in his ransom. The FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper did not survive his jump. Larry Carr also said, Diving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably never even got his chute open. So even if he did land safely, agents contended that survival in the mountainous terrain at the onset of winter would have been all but impossible without an accomplice at a predetermined landing point. And that would have required a very precise time jump. You would have have had to have literally been James Bond or like Jason Bourne in one of the Bourne supremacy Bourne ultimatum movies to have been able to to land that. Yeah, and and they're not real. This is not likely. (laughs) No. So uh, in order to get to a very specific predetermined landing point, this would have required a really precise time jump, necessitating in turn cooperation from the flight crew and there's no evidence that Cooper requested or received any such help from the crew nor that he even had any clear idea where he was when he jumped into the stormy overcast darkness. FBI agents theorized that Cooper took his alias from a popular Belgian comic book series from the 70s featuring the fictional hero Dan Cooper who was a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting. One cover from the series, which the FBI has on its website, um, depicts test pilot Cooper skydiving in full paratrooper gear. But because the Dan Cooper comics were never translated into English or even imported to the US, they speculated that he may have encountered them during a tour of duty in Europe. The Cooper research team suggested that The alternative possibility could be that Cooper was actually Canadian and found the comics in Canada where they were sold. They also noted that his specific demand for, quote, negotiable American currency, which was a phrase seldom, if ever, used by American citizens, which made me feel so much better about being like, what the fuck does that mean? Um, The Canadian theory is also a stronger possibility because witnesses stated that Cooper had no distinguishable accent. So if he wasn't actually from the U.S., then not having or having a quote American accent would only make sense if he was from Canada absolutely I don't mean to say that Canadians have American accents no I I get what you're saying those two countries have the same accent so if you research possible D.B. Cooper suspects you could literally you could literally (laughs) spend a week going down that rabbit hole which I did so uh, to continue with the theme of copy and pasting, the whole Wikipedia page, I can't talk about all of the suspects at list because there was, I think, like 15 or something. So I just chose a few that seemed like the most legit that like had me wondering if it was really them. Him. Yeah. yeah. So the first one is a man named Kenneth Christensen. In 2003, a Minnesota resident named Lyle Christensen watched a television documentary about the Cooper hijacking and became convinced that his late brother, Kenneth, was D.B. Cooper. Christensen enlisted in the Army in 1944 and was trained as a paratrooper. The war had ended by the time he was deployed in 1945, but he did make occasional training jumps while stationed in Japan with the occupation forces in the late 40s. And then after leaving the Army, He started working for Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant and then a purser based in Seattle. You know what? I meant to look up what the fuck a purser is and I didn't. So we'll never know. Yeah. Christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking, but he was shorter at 
5'8 and thinner, around 150 pounds. And he had a lighter complexion than eyewitness descriptions of Cooper. Remember which, he was swarthy? Yeah, which, that's like dumb. He could have gotten a spray tan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, honestly, I didn't think anything of the differences in appearance because 5'8 and 5'10 is so close. And I don't know about you, but I would not be able to guess a person's weight if I tried. Just by eyeballing them. Yeah. yeah. And, to, and especially if I'm like being hijacked, I don't know if I'm going to die. So to see if I even could, I guess that my husband was 160 pounds only for him to tell me he weighs uh, over 200 pounds. So <laughs> you're a little off. Yeah. But like, who's to say that those flight attendants were any better at guessing someone's Absolutely. weight? So like, yeah. I, when fear is involved. Yeah, so the discrepancy in the um, appearance is like, I don't really think anything of it. And my opinion is all that matters, you know? Yeah, it is our podcast. Christensen um, also smoked, just like the hijacker, and he also loved bourbon, which you'll recall was Cooper's preferred beverage on board. But isn't this also like, is this the 70s? Yeah, I know. Everyone, Everyone was smoked. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's every man in America at that point. Uh, he was also left-handed, which is interesting because evidence photos of Cooper's black tie show that the tie clip applied from the left side, which suggests a left-handed wearer. Um, but I guess that's not enough to like... No, it's it. That's him. <laughs> that's it. I don't even that's need to hear about the other gun. ones. That's that one. <laughs> Uh, Florence, the first flight attendant to have contact with Cooper when he gave her the little uh, note, told reporters that photos of Christensen fit her memory of the hijacker's appearance more closely than those of other suspects she had been shown, but could not conclusively identify him. And then Tina, the other flight attendant who had the most contact with him, uh, has never given an interview to the press, so we don't know what she thinks of any photos. Christensen reportedly had purchased a house with cash a few months after the hijacking. And while dying of cancer in 1994, he told his brother Lyle, quote, there is something you should know, but I cannot tell you. And Lyle said he never pressed his brother to explain, which what? is like, what? If you, dude, Can you if imagine you, your if sister you, be? If you were on your deathbed and you gave me a cliffhanger like that, like there would be nothing You'd stopping be me like, from getting that hot goss. Okay. Really, like there's no dude. way. You'd be like, dude, this is literally your day to do this. Yes. We don't have tomorrow, but <laughs> yes. do you know the term deathbed? So after Christensen's death, his family members discovered gold coins in a valuable stamp collection, along with over 200000 in bank accounts. They also found a folder of Northwest Orient news clippings, which began about the time he was hired in the 1950s and then stopped just prior to the date of the hijacking, despite the fact that the hijacking was by far the most momentous news event in the airline's history. Christensen um, continued to work part-time for the airline for many years after 1971, but apparently never clipped another Northwest news story. Interesting. And then... What a a badass to hijack a plane and then continue to work like an office job for them. We don't know if it was him. No, he did it too. Well, you might, be more, you might be more convinced with the next one. Oh, really? Yeah. That sounds so good. Research by Web Sleuths would later uncover proof that Christensen did not actually pay cash for the house that he bought after the hijacking, but instead had a mortgage on the house that took him 17 years to pay off. Uh, the same search would also uncover proof that Christensen had sold off almost two dozen acres of land for 17000 per acre in the mid-90s, which accounted for the large the large sum of money in his account when he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after all of that, the FBI is standing by its position that Christensen cannot be considered a prime suspect because of a lack of evidence. 
So then our next possible suspect is someone named Lynn Doyle Cooper. L.D. Cooper, a leather worker and Korean war vet, was proposed as a suspect in July 2011 by his niece, Marla Cooper. As an eight-year-old, she recalled Cooper and another uncle planning something, quote, very mischievous, Mm. involving the use of, quote, expensive walkie-talkies at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon, which is about 150 miles southeast of Portland. The next day, Flight 305 was hijacked. And even yeah, and even though her uncles were supposedly turkey hunting, L.D. Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt, and he said it was the result of a car accident. No turkeys? She says eventually, as time went on, her parents came to believe that L.D. Cooper was the hijacker. She also says that her uncle, who had died in 1999, wasn't a skydiver or a paratrooper. But he was obsessed with the Canadian comic book hero, Dan Cooper. And she said that he had had one of those comic books thumbtacked to his wall. The FBI announced that Marla Cooper's uncle, L.D. Cooper's DNA, did not match the partial DNA profile obtained from the hijacker's tie. But again, they also reminded everyone that they don't know for certain if the DNA sample from the tie even came from the hijacker himself. So the Bureau has made no further comment on Lynn Doyle Cooper as a suspect. And then our final, I kind of, I did this in order of who I thought was most likely. Okay. And this one, I'm, I think this, I think it was this guy. I okay. think I solved it. Okay, cool. I think I solved this yeah, by tell the reading world. Wikipedia. The final person is a man named Walter R. Rika. I actually meant to find out how to pronounce his last name. It's R-E-C-A. I don't know if it's Rika or Rika. Rika. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to say Rika. Um, but I'm sorry. Or Reka? Or maybe Reka. No, oh. maybe I'll say Reka. Maybe I'll flip flop. Every time I say it, I'll say it differently. So Walter R. Reka, who would have been 38 in 1971, was a Michigan native, a military veteran, and original member of the Michigan Parachute Team. He was proposed as a suspect by his friend Carl Lauren, a former commercial airline pilot and expert parachuter himself, at a press conference on May 17, 2018. Lauren says that 10 years prior, in 2008, his friend Reka confessed to being D.B. Cooper in a recorded phone call. Reka gave Lauren permission in a notarized letter to share his story after he died, which um, he ended up dying in 2014 when he was 80. He also allowed Lauren to tape their phone conversations about the crime over a six-week period in late 2008. In the over three hours of recordings, Reka gave new details about the hijacking that the public had not heard before. Using his years of training to determine the location of the jump, Lauren concluded that D.B. Cooper landed near Clayellum, Washington. According to their written testimony, a Clayellum native named Jeff... You've got this. I don't even know how to pronounce it. His, his name is Jeff, and his last name is O-S-I-A-D-A-C-Z. Just call him Jeff O. I'm just going to call him Jeff. Okay. So uh, this Clayellum native named Jeff was driving his dump truck near Clayell on the night of November 24, 1971, when he saw a man walking down the side of the road in the shit weather. Mm -hmm. He assumed that the man's car had broken down and was walking to get assistance. And Jeff didn't have any room in his truck to pick him up, so he just kept driving until he got to his destination, which was the um, Tinaway Junction Cafe just outside of Clayellum. After Jeff ordered a coffee, the man from the side of the road also entered the cafe looking like, quote, a drowned rat. 
The man from the road sat next to Jeff and asked him if he, the man who had been walking, Mm -hmm. called a friend of his, would Jeff be able to tell the friend where they were located so that the friend could come pick him up? And Jeff said yes, and he spoke with the man's friend on the phone, giving him directions to the cafe. So shortly after that, Jeff got up to leave. The man offered to pay for his coffee and the two parted amicably. So after hearing this, Lauren began his search for Jeff. And remember, it's like this happened in 1971 and this this guy in 2008 is, is hearing about this. And so he starts to look for this because his his friend who's claiming to be D.B. Cooper, he didn't know that man's name. So mm-hmm. this is purely off of like I met some, like, you know, it was nighttime at a cafe. I met this man and I paid for his coffee. That's like all he yeah. has to go off of. But uh, Carl Lauren, he starts searching for Jeff. Reka admitted that he didn't know where the whole ordeal even took place, but he did describe the landscape that he says he saw while on his way, like as he was uh, falling from the plane. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, he described two bridges, some distinct lights, and his description of the exterior and interior of the cafe, as well as his encounter with Jeff. He described Jeff in detail, recalling that he was wearing Western gear and had a guitar case, and he dubbed him Cowboy. And at some point, um, uh, Jeff claims that the re- he, he said that he left the cafe to go play in a local band, so the, the guitar case is relevant. That's just an undeniable, you know what I mean? Like that, just yeah. that, and the detail in itself, it's him. Uh, so Lauren poured over maps to find the landmarks that Rega had described and then began making phone calls about the quote, cowboy who had driven a dump truck. And miraculously, Lauren actually tracks Jeff down. Jeff remembered meeting a man that night and he described what the man was wearing and what he looked like. And then after Lauren sent Jeff a photo of Reka, Jeff confirmed that that was the man he'd met at the cafe. So in addition to hours of tape confession, Lauren also has a written confession by Reka in long underwear allegedly worn by him under his black pants during the hijacking. In 2016, Lauren took all of this information to publisher Principia Media, who had consulted with Joe Koenig, a forensic linguist. He evaluated all of the documents, including passports, identification cards, photographs, and newspaper clippings. He found no evidence of tampering or manipulation and deemed all documentation authentic and and contemporaneous. Contemporaneous? I don't know what the fuck. I meant to delete that word because I didn't even know how to say it. He thought he finds it all authentic, okay? Okay, yes, it's legit. After comparing Lauren's research to the available FBI records, he found no discrepancies that eliminated Reka as a suspect. He also thought it was particularly significant that Jeff's statements of events on the night of November 24th, 1971 was identical to the account that Reka made five years earlier. So Principia Media released a four-part documentary detailing their investigation, which was based off of Carl Lauren's reports. Mm -hmm. And you can find it on um, Amazon Prime video. Um, I couldn't find anywhere that said whether or not the FBI had any opinion on Reka as a suspect. And I think maybe it's because on July 8th, 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper's case of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its investigation resources and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. And so given that Carl Lauren had released all of this info two years later in 2018, maybe it's 
just not something they've looked into. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but even though that they had suspended their active investigation, they do say that all local FBI field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related specifically to parachutes or the ransom money. The 60-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation uh, will be preserved for, for historical purposes at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. And then on the FBI website, there's currently a 28-part packet full of evidence gathered over the years. And all the evidence is open to the public to read. And I actually read through a lot of it, mm-hmm. which was like really cool. So this happened 49 years ago. And despite like some people literally committing their lives to finding the truth, Mm -hmm. what happened to the hijacker of Northwest Orient Flight 305 and all the rest of the ransom money remains a mystery and probably always will. And that's the story of D.B. Cooper. That is so fascinating. I love that it's open to interpretation, I guess. You know, nobody, no anything. Could be someone's grandpa. He could have gone on to live you know, like a somewhat normal life totally. or he could have died that night. So yeah, there's just like, there's no, like, and if he did die, like where, I just have so many questions. Yeah. Where's his body? Where's I mean, his I guess body, where's a large, all of the, you know, I um, guess a large body of water does leave a lot of mystery, which is also, no, they search every body of water. They searched it all. And yeah, I guess you would find it. I love when we cover Something that has nothing to do with a murder, which is, I guess, it's silly for me no, to be excited re- about that. No, but it's refreshing. It's like it's you know, it's called crime bar for not a murder. reason, not murder bar. I just that think ki- a, that kind of would have been a cool name. It would have been cool. <laughs> yeah, no hate if anyone ever wants to create a podcast with that name. We, yeah. we won't judge you. No. Um, I think it was cool that we both covered cases that had nothing to do with actually anyone dying. Yeah, that was refreshing. A I fun holiday treat. Yes. So, um. Happy Thanksgiving and happy November 7th, which is the real day we're recording this. Yeah. Happy uh, president was announced today. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I love you, Ash. And I love you too. And, I'll see uh, you next week. Be sure to load up your plate in the future for Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving, I'll do that. Yeah. Get thirds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll, probably, I'll probably talk to you before then though. Yeah. I mean, it's again, it's November 7th. We'll yeah. definitely talk. I'll talk to you tomorrow yeah. probably. <laughs> love okay, you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube at Crime Bar Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.